Hello, this is Philip Adams, and here's the kicker. The government's relationship with the art sector in this country is so bitter, some might call it a war. But how did we get here? Hi, I'm Arielle Richards, producer of The Kicker. In our debut episode, reporters Christopher Moyer and Caitlin Cassidy take a look at the government's relentless cuts to the arts and, along the way, uncover a delectable tale of resistance from the so-called Australian cultural terrorists. From a city filled with the sounds of live music spilling out of bars, the applause of captivated audiences and a bustling arts industry, to empty streets, vacant venues and an evening curfew. I'm Chris Moyer. And I'm Caitlin Cassidy. It's been a pretty tough time for the arts Australia-wide. Victoria has now lost a quarter of its jobs in the arts and recreation sectors since the pandemic began, and the rest of the nation isn't coping much better. When the federal government announced a $250 million package for the industry in June, it promised some really much-needed relief for artists in limbo. The arts sector is applauding the federal government's rescue package this morning. It's been one of the hardest-hit sectors of the economy during the COVID pandemic. In the backstage or in lighting, $250 million is being put up in payments and cheap loans. Now it's about the way back. Now it's about ensuring that we can get the show back on the road and the workers back into the jobs. The relief was promised by Minister for the Arts. And cyber safety and communications. True, arts and cyber safety, the two really do go hand in hand. Yeah, just like chalk and cheese, yeah. (laughs) So Paul Fletcher, Minister for the Arts, that the celebration ended up being pretty short-lived. Not only is $90 million of the proposed funding actually in concessional loans, meaning a third of the funding has to be paid back, But just over a month after he introduced the package, it was revealed... The money they announced for the arts and entertainment industry, the the tiny amount, the $250 small beer by the $100 billion JobKeeper program, for example, hasn't been spent. Not one dollar of that has moved. The the guidelines haven't been issued, according to Mr Burke and, uh, uh, and a report quoting the Minister's office. And the tension really came to a head during a feisty exchange between Minister Fletcher and acting Q&A host Virginia Trioli. Why is this the industry to cap with the amount of money that you'll allow to get this industry back on its feet, whereas with Job Builder, there's no cap? Well, let's be very just, just, clear. Just tell me, just tell me why let, the difference. Virginia, let's be very clear. That's a Greens talking point. That was an observation that the Greens made. I don't really but, care if it's but, a Greens talking point. But, it's my question. But the fact is... This isn't the first time that artists have been up in arms about funding from governments, is it? No, it's really not the first time. It's actually a story that goes back decades. Decades? Yeah, decades. I mean, to be precise, about 35 years. So, the 80s. The 80s, that's what I'm talking about. We're about to take you back. Way back. The 
first sign that something was terribly wrong at the National Gallery came when Channel 9 received this letter from a group calling itself the Australian Cultural Terrorists. The group claimed it had stolen the $1.5 million weeping woman by Picasso to protest against the niggardly funding of the arts in this, quote, hick state, unquote. According to the gallery, the weeping woman is the most important 20th century work it's acquired, and it's certainly the most expensive. The apparent hoax was now looking like the art theft of the century. So this is a story that involves pretty much everything that I love. Bow ties, art heists, and dramatic reveals. Oh, the key elements to any good tale. Yeah, exactly. So at around midnight on August 2nd in 1986, this group known only as the Australian Cultural Terrorists walks out of the National Gallery with a Picasso in tow. A Picasso, just like a Picasso under their arm, clocking off for the Friday and taking it with them. Yes, exactly. Like wrapped in brown paper bag and string, they somehow walk out with no one noticing with this hugely expensive painting in their hands. Ah, so why did they take it? So three days later, this ransom note gets sent round to major newsrooms saying that the theft was a protest against, and I'm going to quote this part, the clumsy, unimaginative stupidity of the administration and distribution of that funding. Wow, real fighting words. Yeah, pretty, pretty aggressive words there. So what exactly were their demands? Well, the thieves had two real requests. One was that the Minister for the Arts would raise the funding by 10% in real terms over the next three years, and two, that the Minister would create these five annual prizes for young artists to combat what they sort of saw as this preferential funding system for larger institutions like the NGV over emerging talent. So they give the Minister exactly seven days to meet their demands before the painting would be destroyed. So does anything happen a week later? Well... There's only 48 hours left to the deadline set by the Australian cultural terrorists. The letter addressed to Arts Minister Race Matthews says, If our demands are not met, you will begin the long process of carrying about you the smell of kerosene and burning canvas. It's a hideous uh, experience, don't worry. I mean, what you feel is nothing but ignominy and shame. Well, of course, I do hope they're not going to do what they suggest they're going to do, but alternatively, I would... That's destroyed. That's destroyed, yes. The deadline set for the destruction of the painting passed at 10 o'clock last night, and since then there's been no word from the self-styled Australian cultural terrorists who say they have it. Did they go through with it? Well, in the end, no. So two weeks after making contact, on budget night actually, the Age news desk gets this call. It was a phone call last night to the Age newspaper that led police across the road to a locker at the Spencer Street station. The significant thing about that day is it was budget day, and budget day is of course a very big news day for the newspaper, so it was all hands on deck. That's Margaret Simons. She was actually in the newsroom that night covering how Paul Keating was going to tackle Australia's, at the time, pretty big deficit. When the news desk took the call from the Australian cultural terrorists um, saying where the painting was to be found, and I was, because I, just because I was there, basically, uh, the editor pointed at me and said, get over there, which I did. So she makes a mad dash, and this is the part where we get the dramatic reveal, right? Well, we do get the dramatic reveal, but not the mad dash. The Aegis officers were actually across the road from the train station, so no real dash was required. Well, it was very exciting, and of course we had no real idea as to whether it was just a hoax call or not. 
uh, we had we did believe that the call was from the Australian cultural terrorists because they had used the age news desk as a means of communication before but you know we didn't know whether they were just um, just messing with us in terms of saying the painting was there so yes I mean it was a huge story in Melbourne at the time as you can imagine and um, was exciting but I mean there were elements of feeling slightly ridiculous because having dashed over there literally in a sprint you know to sort of be pulled up sharp outside the locker give the handle a pull realize you probably shouldn't have done that and then hang around basically <laughs> waiting for happen it, um, it felt a bit anticlimactic in some ways after an anonymous tip by a male to the age newspaper major crime squad detectives recovered the stolen picasso painting weeping woman from a public locker at Spencer Street Rail Station last night. It'll go behind bulletproof glass and be bolted to the wall and they'll have to tag the wall next time. <laughs> what did the Australian cultural terrorists, did they ever find them? No, they never find them. So there were sort of these rumours floating around that it was an inside job, but to this day, even Margaret Simons doesn't know. As far as I know, nobody has ever conclusively established who it was, although there are still suspicions to this day. And their demands weren't fully realised either. Part of their complaint as well was that what funding there was tended to go to the big arts institutions and established artists rather than to, you know, emerging talent. I suspect that's probably still the case. And I mean, Simons is kind of right. Decades later, not much has changed for the arts sector. The Arts Minister Senator George Brandis has announced that $104 million will be cut uh, from the Australia Council. In their first budget last year, Arts Minister Brandis and the Coalition Government cut $28.2 million out of the Australia Council. Senator Brandis has put pay to this tried and true system and slapped in the face an institution of which every Australian should be proud. In their second budget, the Coalition Government has cut even more funding from the Council. Scott Morrison, this government I have no doubt that they are Philistines, that they don't have any understanding of the financial, cultural and trickle-down value of arts in this country. The Morrison government has stripped the arts of top billing. The Department of Arts and Communications disappears and it gets pulled into a mega department of infrastructure, transport, regional development and communications, but no arts. Since 2013, cuts on top of cuts have continued to shrink the Australia Council, who provide funding and grants for artists and major programs. That puts the sector in a pretty tough situation when you pile a pandemic onto a shoestring budget. Look, if ATYP cannot secure additional operational funding by 2022, then it's going to have a fairly catastrophic effect. That's Fraser Caulfield, the Creative Director of the Australian Theatre for Young People, or ATYP. ATYP recently found out that their four-year funding from the Australia Council has been cut, meaning a large portion of their revenue for the next four years is just gone. In the last funding round, the feedback to ATYP and other youth theatre companies that were cut, leading companies, Polyglot, Barking Gecko, St Martin's, Shopfront, was there was nothing wrong with your application. You were exceptionally strong across all areas. There simply wasn't enough money to go around, and that's what's really distressing and disheartening. It means that all the community service work that ATYP does, all the work for schools, all the investment in playwriting, all the new works that are picked up and produced by schools and youth theatres around the country, that's the sort of work that will be jeopardised by a loss in funding. And the pandemic really hasn't helped. There is this concern about what the longer term future holds and 
and not just for our company and our staff. I mean, essentially, we're a pretty small organisation in the grand scheme of things. But what this company represents for the national performing arts sector is huge. If the National Youth Theatre Company can be defunded, then what are we saying about the long-term viability of our whole industry? It's a similar picture across the board, right? I mean, independent artists will be hit just as hard, first through the funding cuts, now with the coronavirus. I really felt for especially young artists who are putting their first steps into the industry who, are, who don't have the same opportunities that I had even 10 years ago. Like Everything seems to be getting the knees cut out of it very, very quickly. Abdul Abdullah is one such artist who's been hit really hard. He's a multidisciplinary artist based in Sydney. The COVID-19 pandemic has thrown into doubt his exhibitions planned for next year, many of which were meant to be overseas. Now, the only art Abdullah still has on display is work which explores monsters as the stand-ins for societal anxieties of our time at the Adelaide Biennial. It's really become all the more fitting in the age of COVID. So the way that we perceive the, the coronavirus as the monster, the way that we, the, these things that, are, that, that elicit fear and uh, fear in the unknown, I think. Fear in the unknown is a common feeling these days. Uh, it's a, definitely a big time of uncertainty. Um, and I was in New York for a show when COVID hit in March over there. So I had to rush back to Australia pretty quickly and looking into my next year. So, so far, I haven't been that affected. There's been shows that have been delayed and there's certainly shows that I can't get to. But next year, is there's a big question under it because all of my exhibitions, uh, one or two, were overseas and none of those are likely to happen. Sadly, anxiety for what the future might hold would be felt amongst many young artists. There's so many of my friends who are artists who have part-time jobs, who, who, which they use to support their practices, uh, where those jobs have gone or those jobs have been affected. They've been hurt massively. There's no doubt coronavirus has been a huge blow, but Abdullah has seen artist spaces shrinking for a really long time. There wasn't much support for spaces and platforms, so you'd found artists with funding to do projects but without the platforms to engage with broader audiences. And I think that's one of the long-lasting effects of these cuts is that these institutional spaces and artist-run spaces and platforms which people can engage with and show their work to audiences, they're disappearing really quickly. And I think that's going to be a problem for that next generation. And Abdullah doesn't think the problem is just neglect of the sector, but an issue that's closely tied to the government's attitude towards the arts over the past decade. It's part of this overarching, an overarching feeling or overarching philosophy which devalues arts and culture. I know that the government can do more, but they just don't really give a shit. And there's, there's no attempt, doesn't seem any attempt from the government to, to bridge that gap or to help out at all. It's just like kicking a dog while it's down. It's a mood that's really felt across the board. At ATYP, Caulfield thinks the government's systemic devaluing of the art sector is why artists have struggled for years to secure funding. Look, I absolutely applaud the Australian Council in its investment in diversity, um, uh, regional diversity, cultural diversity, First Nations. You know, I wouldn't take money from any of the companies that were funded in the last round. They are all outstanding companies. But we have this ludicrous scenario where... ATYP has been defunded and it engages more young people than all the other youth theatre companies that were funded combined. The problem is that there is simply not enough investment in the arts. Did Caulfield have any thoughts on ScoMo's comments that, you know, arts funding helps tradies? Yeah, he did. And a lot of artists I spoke to did have that feeling. So 
Caulfield sort of thinks it highlights that the government doesn't really see artists as genuine workers having a go, but not getting a go back. When Scott Morrison said that, when he came out and said, this isn't just for artists, this is for tradies that build the sets and the IT people that do the special effects, with the clear implication that for some reason they are more needy and more viable jobs than the arts, it just highlighted the fact that maybe there's a lack of understanding that Artists have mortgages too. Artists have families too. Artists are battling Australians as well. But framing the $250 million arts package in terms of its financial advantages also fails to reflect the importance of art during a crisis. So one of the things that's really interesting at the moment is as attention is turning away from the arts in the, in the face of greater social need is that actually an investment in the arts will address many of the social needs that the government is focused on at the moment. It will address this ballooning mental health crisis that's hitting young people across the nation. There's an opportunity, actually, in coming years for the arts to be built into the nation's COVID response as opposed to becoming a victim of it. So will the government listen to artists this time around? They didn't seem to take much notice of the Australian cultural terrorists and they had $2 million worth of Picasso bargaining power back then, as well as a pretty confronting name. It is a confronting name, isn't it? The Australian cultural terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, to answer your question, I mean, they are kind of listening. In late August, the government appointed this Creative Economy Task Force who were assigned with helping the arts sector recover from the impacts of COVID-19. But their main role is just to assist in the distribution of the $250 million package. You know, the one that was announced in June. Ah, uh, the one that no one has received. Yeah, the one that months later hasn't gone to anyone. So... Whatever happens, artists are still pursuing their need to create, although for now they're limited to their houses, not concert halls. For Caulfield, though, artists' role in supporting Australians coming out of lockdown and heading into uncertain times will be critical. And my hope is that if we start to see the performing arts as part of that healing process and part of that community building process, then we might see a very different society in 10 years' time. Thanks to our fabulous reporters, Christopher Moyer and Caitlin Cassidy. The music in this episode is by Genuine Fake. Check them out, they are incredible. The Kicker is produced by Marco Holden-Jeffrey and myself, Arielle Richards. Special thanks to our executive producer, Janak Rogers. We'll be back next week with episode two, Fire in the Australian Psyche, from reporters Elsie Lange and Steph Barker. Until then, we're on Twitter at KickerPod, and Instagram at thekicker.pod. Find us for some extra tidbits and super fun content. If you haven't already, subscribe to The Kicker on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave us a rating or a review if you fancy. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Sponsored by The Student Doll. Music by Jack Jevons. This podcast was recorded, mixed and produced on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded.